Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Father, I'd ask that over these next few minutes that you'd add your blessing to the reading of your word. Uh, Bring clarity, Lord, to this text and help us to learn and grow Uh, in our understanding of who you are, why you came, and what our response should be to that, Father. I pray that you'd uh, help each one of us grow, Lord, in our love for you as a result of studying this text this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This week we come to the birth of Jesus, and before we begin to work through our text, I just want to give us a little bit of a backdrop to this from the book of Micah. This is a a prophecy of Christ that was given hundreds of years before his birth. Micah had said, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And so here we see a prophecy that in Bethlehem, this very little town, and you notice it says you're little among uh, the thousands of Judah. Bethlehem was not a large town. It still isn't a large town. It's a very small place in Israel. Uh, an insignificant town, kind of like Nazareth, like, like we talked about a few weeks ago. But from this little town, Micah says, a ruler is going to come forth who's been from everlasting, this eternal ruler. God himself was coming to be a ruler, and he would be born in Bethlehem. 
And if you're familiar with the story of Luke 2 or the Christmas story, uh, this doesn't come as a great shock to you. You know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and, and everybody knows that. But Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem. As we looked at a few weeks ago, they were from Nazareth, which is about 80 to 90 miles north. They were nowhere near Bethlehem. So the question is, if Micah says that this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, how is God going to make this happen? How is God going to bring it to pass that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem when that's not where his parents were from? And we see in verse 1 of our, our chapter here, Luke 2, 1, that God uses a census. We see the census of Caesar starting in verse 1. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So Caesar, and this is not a person's name, this is a title, sort of like king or pharaoh, whatever. Caesar is a title. This particular Caesar is uh, most likely the Roman emperor Octavian. And he gives a decree that the whole Roman empire is going to be taxed. And in order to facilitate this, we see in verse 3, it says, all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. So the Roman Empire decides we're going to tax all of our citizens, and that includes everyone living in Israel. Remember, Israel is under Roman occupation. They, were, uh, they had been conquered by the Romans. And so Caesar decides, I want to, I want to tax all of my citizens. And in order to accomplish this, the, everyone's going to have to return to their hometown, basically, wherever their, uh, their ancestral town and register in order to be taxed. And so we see here the, 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 the census of Caesar, followed by, in verse 4, the journey of Joseph. Joseph, We see uh, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So this is how God gets Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the end of the verse there, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Remember, Joseph is a descendant of King David. To be taxed, the purpose of his journey to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So Joseph, being a descendant of David, had to return to Bethlehem to register for the census in order to pay his taxes. And this was no fun trip. Uh, first of all, if we look at this on a map, sorry, let's go back here. We'll see um, up here is Nazareth. This is where they're from, and they're headed down here to Bethlehem. And like I said, that, that's about 80 miles if you go straight. Normally, um, people would go around and make it about a 90-mile trip. They'd go along the Jordan River and come in. And the reason for that is if you went straight through, uh, you would run straight into this. This is Samaria. Okay, if you ever hear in the Bible about the wilderness, this is what it's talking about. And by the way, I took this picture in February when I was in Israel a few years ago, right at the end of the rainy season. Okay, this is the best that it gets. If you come here in November, it's a complete desert. There is no green. Uh, and so no one wants to travel through that. So what they would normally do is go along the Jordan River, which would make it about a 90-mile trip. And if you think 90 miles, that's not that big of a deal. Well, imagine walking 90 miles. Okay, they didn't have cars, obviously. And imagine walking those 90 miles with a nine-month pregnant woman. <laughs> and if you think, well, it, you know, it's commonly said Mary was riding on a donkey. So that's not a big deal. Okay, well, if you, you talk to anyone who's ever given birth, uh, ladies, would it be a big deal to go 90 miles riding on a donkey? Okay, I don't think that makes it much better. And so we can imagine this, this was a, a long and miserable trip. And what made it perhaps even more miserable was the purpose. You know, sometimes it, it can be okay to go on a long trip if you have something to look forward to. But the purpose of this trip was to go pay taxes. I mean, can you imagine uh, that this was not an exciting journey? But God was moving Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there. 
And I, I find this interesting. Caesar, his intention was not to fulfill God's purpose, but he wanted money. Caesar just wanted to tax the citizens, but God's decree superseded his decree. God, Caesar wanted money. That was his motivation, but God was using him to accomplish his greater purposes. This is what Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God works through human actions. And this is a fascinating concept all throughout the scripture that we think we're acting as free creatures and just doing whatever we want to do. And yet, above that, God is sovereign, making sure that his will is carried out. He's, he is accomplishing his purposes even when we have no idea that we're being used. I mean, Caesar had no clue that he was being used to accomplish God's purposes, and yet he was. So we see the census of Caesar followed by the journey of Joseph. Verse 6, we see the birth of a baby. Forgive me for the alliteration. It just came to me this week as I was writing this. I don't normally do that. But verse 6, so it was that while they were there uh, in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And that just means strips of cloth, basically. And laid him in a manger, an animal feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so, in a sense, we could say our journey with Jesus really starts here. Throughout the rest of the book of Luke, as we've seen in the first chapter, Jesus hasn't been born yet. This is really when Jesus' life begins. And prior to this, we've seen, we've seen Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the birth of John the Baptist. But here is where Jesus enters the story, and what a humble beginning. Uh, there's no place for Jesus to stay, and so he stays in, in likely a cave where animals were kept. There's no crib or bed for him to lay on, so they lay him in an animal feeding trough. There's no clothes for him, so they wrap him in strips of cloth. Jesus did not choose to enter humanity in in a prestigious family or as a son of a king or something. No, he chose to be born in a place where animals were kept. The humility of Christ here is on on display. Verse 8, we see the appearance of an angel. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. So we could say the appearance of the angel caused the shuddering of the shepherds. And uh, and we saw this in the past, that angels, whenever, sorry, whenever you encounter an angel, uh, it's a frightening experience. You know, we think of angels, it's weird that our culture views angels as these cute little, you know, babies or whatever. No, an angel is a frightening thing. I heard someone say this week, when you see an angel, uh, you don't think, oh, how cute. You wet your pants. That's what he said. <laughs> That's a vivid way of saying it. But angels are scary. An encounter with an angel was, was not something you were going to forget. Verse 10, we see the announcement of the angel. Fear not, for behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So the angel gives his announcement and he says, like, he's, like we've seen in all the accounts so far, when an angel encounters someone, one of the first things they say is, don't be afraid. And that's because people normally are afraid. And so they say, fear not. And he gives the reason. For, or because, I'm bringing you good news, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And the good news in verse 11 is that a Savior has been born. And notice he says, unto you is born. This Savior. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that the shepherds were Jesus' parents, so he wasn't born to them in that sense, but he was born to the shepherds in the sense that he came as a Savior. Verse 11 says this, that unto you is born a Savior. 
So this, this, this child who's been born has come for the purpose of your salvation. And we ought to rejoice in the fact that Jesus came to earth because he came for us. He came unto us. He came as our Savior. And isn't this amazing, again, that the angel appears to shepherds. He doesn't appear to a king. He doesn't appear to some uh, important religious leader, but rather this announcement is given to some lowly shepherds abiding in the field. By the way, the word for good tidings in verse 11 is, comes from the root euangelion, from which we get the, you know, the, the word gospel or evangelism. And so basically, if you want to translate this literally, the angel says, I evangelize to you great joy. He's declaring the gospel, that salvation has come through this child Jesus. And that's the gospel in a nutshell, right? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save us. Luke 2.12, we see a sign's given, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then verse 13 and 14, we see the melody of a multitude. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angel is joined by many other angels, and they burst forth in praise to God. Verse 15, the authentication of the announcement came to pass as the angels were gone away from, from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. The shepherds wanted to validate the news that they'd just been given. And the angel in verse 12 had given them a sign that they would find this child wrapped in strips of cloth laying in a, an animal feeding trough. That would certainly be an unusual uh, thing to see. And so they wanted to go make sure that this was accurate. And quickly, it says, they went to Bethlehem and found that it was exactly as it had been told to them. By the way, uh, this nativity scene, this famous scene where the shepherds uh, come in and meet Jesus in the manger, uh, the wise men weren't here. Okay, A lot of times you'll see nativity scenes where You'll have the, you know, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and the wise men. No, the wise men don't come until uh, almost two years later. If you read Matthew's account, it talks about how the wise men entered a house and, and Jesus wasn't a baby. He was a toddler at this point. And so this was a lot, there's a big distance, uh, between these two events. The wise men, you remember, they, they see the star and they follow the star to where Jesus is. And, and presumably that journey took well over a year for them to make from wherever they were coming from. And so, uh, this is just a little side note. When I was a kid, uh, I would get frustrated with the inaccurate nativity scenes. Uh, and so at our house, whenever I would set up the nativity scene, I'd make sure I put the wise men on the other side of the room. So they were, they were on their journey. and Probably ridiculous, but that's what I did. <laughs> Verse 17, we see the broadcasting of the birth. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. So the shepherds are, are the ones being spoken of here. They go around and they spread the news of the birth of this child. Verse 18, all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And the shepherds couldn't help but tell others of this great news. By the way, this should be the heart of every Christian as well. Just like uh, the angel, euangelions, he gives, he evangelizes, he gives that gospel news. We as Christians ought to follow the example of these shepherds and spread the news of the coming of Christ to everyone around us. If it's true that, it, that Jesus has come as a Savior, Unto us as people, uh, this is good news that we ought to be telling others. And then in verse 19, we see the musing of Mary. Mary kept all these things, pondered them in her heart. In verse 20, the climactic ending of this, this passage, we see the glorifying of God. The shepherds returned, 
glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And by the way, we said uh, earlier that the Savior was born unto us as humanity. And so if the angels were praising God at the birth of Christ, even though he wasn't born for angels, he wasn't born to save angels, how much more ought we as humanity to, to glorify God for the coming of Christ? Unto us is born the Savior. We who are the recipients of this salvation ought to glorify God especially uh, for the coming of Christ. And the praising of God has really been the theme of Luke's gospel so far as we've seen it. We talked about Zechariah and, and his song of praise. And we talked about Mary and Elizabeth, their, their song of praise to God. We've seen the angels in our story today praising God. And here, the shepherds are doing the same. The coming of Jesus caused God's people to rejoice. And two weeks ago, I preached a sermon that I entitled, Praise God for His Grace to the Humble. Last week's sermon was, Praise God for His Mercy to Sinners. And this morning, we could say, the sermon is, Praise God for Sending Our Savior. We shouldn't wait until Christmas to get excited about the fact that God sent a Savior to redeem us. So what I want to talk about the rest of our message here is, what does it mean to glorify God? You see that in verse 20 where it says the shepherds, they praised God and they glorified God. And the reason I want to focus in on this is several weeks ago, whenever we started our series through Luke, I mentioned that there were some key themes in the book of Luke. And one of those themes is the glory of God, glorifying God. And so I want us to just to take a few minutes this morning to examine what does it mean to glorify God. And it comes from a Greek word, doxazontes. So I'm expanding your vocabulary this morning. Doxazontes is a Greek word that's translated in this verse as glorify. And if you look it up in a standard Greek dictionary, this is BDAG lexicon, uh, which is the standard Greek lexicon in, in Greek scholarship. And what they say here, first definition of glorify is to cause to have splendid greatness to clothe in splendor, to glorify. So to glorify means to take something tainted and make it glorious. But that can't be what it means to glorify God. Okay, God is already glorious. We can't possibly glorify God if it means to make him more glorious. God is infinitely glorious, and there's nothing we could ever do to increase his glory. So under definition one, glorifying God would be utterly impossible. This is what God does for us, though. Right? When, when we talk about how our salvation results in our glorification, what that means is when we die or when we leave this life and enter eternity, God glorifies us. He makes us, he clothes us in, in splendor. He, he removes the tainting of sin and makes us like he is. And so that's the hope that we have to look forward to. But that's not what we mean when we say glorify God. Definition two, I think, is closer. To influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation, to praise, to honor, to extol. We don't make God glorious. He already is. So what we mean when we say we glorify God is we show others around us how glorious our God is. We influence the opinion of those around us so as to enhance God's reputation. We bring honor to God. We magnify God. So glorifying God means making him look glorious to those around us. And when, when people hang around me, they ought to have a higher view of God as a result. That's what glorifying God means. Now, I want us to take a step back from glorifying and look at the root word there, which is glory, okay? This is one of those Bible words that I think almost no one has a clear image in their mind of what this means. What is, what is glory? It's one of those, those Christian-y words that we don't really use outside of church, and so it's kind of hazy, I think, for most of us. 
The word glory comes from a Hebrew word, kavod, and none of, none of this is on the screen. A lot of this I kind of thought of this morning. I didn't have time to put in, so forgive me for that. But the word glory comes from a Hebrew word, kavod, uh, which the most basic definition of kavod is actually weight, uh, weightiness. So uh, you remember the story of Eli when he dies. He's sitting on a wall, and he hears bad news from a battle, and he falls off and, and dies. And it, the text says that he was old and very heavy. Okay, And that word heavy is the word glory. It's kavod. Um, in fact, as I recall, it doesn't even say, and in Hebrew it says, Eli was kavod kavod, which is a way of emphasizing a word. So in English it gets translated as very heavy. Uh, whenever you double a word in Hebrew like that, it, it intensifies the word. So kavod means weight. At least that, that's uh, one definition of it. So the glory of God then is his weightiness. It, it's It's what he is, his character. We could say it's his goodness. Remember the story of Moses where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And what does God say? I'll make my goodness to pass before you. There's a correlation there. In Isaiah 6, the vision of Isaiah where the angel, one angel says to another about God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, and we expect the word holiness. That kind of makes sense. He's talking about how holy God is. The whole earth is full of his holiness. But instead he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so the glory of God then is, is God's essence. It's who he is. It's his character all, in all of his perfections. And when we lift up God and who God is and show others around us the goodness of God and what he's like, we bring glory to him. Because in essence, what we're doing is we're spreading the glory of God to other people. That's what it means to glorify God. We learn more about God from his word. We gain a greater understanding of the glory or essence of God. And then we take that knowledge of God and put it on display to those around us. That's how we glorify God. So glorifying God happens as we grow in our understanding of who God is, and then as we show others our glorious God. And again, I think of the story of Moses where Moses sees God's glory, and as he leaves that place, his face is shining so bright people can't even look at him. So they, they actually put, put a little uh, sheet over his face. And, and in the same way, we ought to, as we dig into Scripture, we ought to see the glory of God, and then as we leave, our face should radiate that glory out to others. Our lives ought to uh, show other people what God is like. Like the moon takes on the light of the sun and, and reflects it to earth. We should be taking the glory of God and shining that out to other people. We should be reflecting the glory of God to the world. So we glorify God when we put God on display through what we say and what we do. We, we don't make him look big. He, he already is. We don't make him look glorious. We just see him for who he is and we share that with other people. Uh, the Westminster Catechism famously says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created for the purpose of knowing God and then displaying God's glory in the world. Another way of saying that, we were created to be in relationship with God and then to show others what God is like. And so a simple definition, if you want a, a very basic definition, what does it mean to glorify God? I would say it is to lift him up. That's what it means to bring glory to God. And so I agree with the Westminster Catechism that, that it should be the ultimate goal of our life to glorify God. I think that's true for two reasons. First of all, uh, because we were created by God. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. 
We ought to make it our ultimate goal in life to glorify God because we were created to do so. And secondly, as Christians, we especially ought to glorify God because we've been purchased by Him. We owe everything to Him already because He's our Creator, and yet the fact that He died to rescue us from our sins means we owe ourselves doubly to Him. 1 Corinthians 6, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, because of that, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to God, and therefore we ought to glorify Him. So what I'm saying is the the ultimate goal of your life should be to glorify God because He created you and because He saved you. We ought to glorify God. And that, that can't be a secondary focus of our life. Like, my first priority is accomplish this, and along the way, you know, I'll try to do some things that glorify God. No, this, the glorification of God ought to drive everything else that we do. We should think in every decision that we make, and we should ask, does this choice help or hinder us from achieving my goal in life, which is glorifying God? And that may seem like an extreme way of viewing this, but I think 1 Corinthians 10 Uh, 31, it says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This is what we are called to do. So the question is, how do we glorify God? How can we do this? So you say, okay, David, you've convinced me I need to glorify God. I'm going to give you 13 practical ways that you can do this. This will be rapid fire. I'm just going to give them to you with a few scriptures. Number one, we glorify God when we fear him. Isaiah 25, 3. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee, the city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. You see the correlation between glorify and fear. Luke 7, 16, there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. So we glorify God when we fear him. Number two, we glorify God when we are in awe of him. Uh, Matthew 9, the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Mark 2 says, Immediately he arose, took up the bed, speaking of a lame man, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Being amazed by God, being in awe of God, is a way of glorifying him. Luke 5.26, They were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. I think we glorify God when we look at a sunset. We don't just think that's a pretty sunset. No, we think that's a beautiful God who made that sunset. When we stand in awe of God, when we stand on a mountain and look at God's creation, we feel that sense of awe in God. That's a means of glorifying Him. So we glorify God when we are in awe of Him, whether that's because of what He's created or because of what He's done. Remember, uh, Psalm says, I think it's Psalm 19, says, the heavens declare the glory of God. If God created everything and everything beautiful and good in our world is an expression of his glory. So don't just say, that's a beautiful sunset. In fact, I I thought about this this morning. It's almost a form of idolatry, really, to say that's a beautiful thing, like a sunset or, or a mountain or whatever, without also saying something about God in that. And I get that from Romans 1, where I will not take time to turn there, but Romans 1 talks about how God created and made himself known through the things that he created so that all of humanity is without excuse. We all know there's a God. If we open our eyes and just look at what he's made, you can't deny that there's a creator. And and Romans 1 goes on to say that what people do is they take, instead of glorifying God, and it's the same word in, in Romans 1, I believe, instead of glorifying God, we exchange the glory of God for the created thing. 
And it goes on to say that our, our foolish hearts are darkened, thinking that we're wise, we become fools by exchanging the glory of God for a created thing. And we worship, this is the rest of Romans 1, we worship the creation rather than the creator. And so I think it's dangerously close to Romans 1 idolatry to admire the creation of God without admiring the God of creation. I think it's 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 borderline idolatry, seriously, to look at God's creation and just think, oh, that's beautiful, without going deeper than that. Don't just say that's a pretty sunset. Say that's a beautiful God who made that. And see the hand of God in his creation. Uh, number three, we glorify God when we trust in him. Psalm fifty fifteen says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. When others see that we trust in our God, that brings glory to him. Number four, we glorify God when we praise him. Maybe this is a more obvious one. Uh, Psalm fifty twenty three: Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. I think that's pretty straightforward. So one way of glorifying God is praising him. Now let me offer one clarification here. Half-hearted praise does not glorify God. We don't bring glory to God when we praise him without any emotion behind it, when we just sing words to him. If glorifying God means making him look glorious to those around us and lifting up the glory of God, I think we detract from the glory of God in the eyes of those around us when we sing praises to God out of duty and not with our heart. Psalm 86.12 says, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. So we, 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 pr- we glorify him when we praise him with our whole hearts. By the way, each, each Sunday we start off our service with singing. And that's not just a filler that we do in the beginning of our service to make up time. No, that's an important part of what we do. We do that to praise and to glorify God. And, and when we sing half-heartedly, I think we detract from God's glory. If glorifying God means causing those around me to think higher of God, then my half-hearted singing of songs of praise shows to others around me God really isn't that glorious to me. And so when it comes time to sing praises to our God, we ought to sing with passion. We ought to be singing from our hearts to the Lord, as Colossians says. So we glorify God when people, I'm sorry, when we praise him. Number five, we glorify God when people see the gospel transform us. When people look at your life, when people that knew you prior to your conversion, and they see this transformation that God made in your life, it brings glory to God. Uh, Galatians 1.23, speaking of Paul, but they had heard only that he, this is, this is Paul, he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith uh, which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. And so Paul, you remember, has this incredible conversion experience. Paul persecuted the church. He, he took uh, Christians out and uh, put them in jail. He was, a, he was an enemy of the church of Christ. And then he gets saved. And now he goes from persecuting the church to preaching the gospel. And when people saw that transformation, Galatians 1 says they glorified God. It brings glory to God when people see the, the gospel transform our lives. Verse uh, Number 6, we glorify God when we obey him. Uh, John 13, 31, therefore when he was gone out, this is Judas, when, when he left, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Basically, what, what's being said there is by, by Jesus' obedience to the will of God, dying on the cross, he brought glory to God. He glorified God. Again, John seventeen four. I have glorified thee on earth. He's praying to God at this point. I have glorified thee on earth. 
I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. We glorify God when we obey him. Number seven, we glorify God when we bear fruit. Uh, John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And, and that speaks of growing as a Christian and producing. Part of this, I think, is reaching others with the gospel. When I tell someone about Christ and they become a disciple of Jesus, they start glorifying God with me. And so I, I'm glorifying God, in essence, by causing other people to glorify God. So we glorify God when we bear fruit. Uh, number eight, we glorify God when we live in unity with our fellow Christians. Romans 15.5 says, The God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also has received us to the glory of God. So we, we glorify God when we live in unity with fellow Christians. By the way, this is one thing that drew me very much so to this church, uh, was the unity that I saw here. There's not a whole lot of fighting at Lakeshore Baptist Church, and I thank God for that. Uh, at least as far as I can see, everyone in this room gets along. I mean, we have great unity here, and that's not true of all churches. Uh, there's, there's a lot of places where the testimony of the Christians in church really detracts from the glory of God, and we hear this all the time. Uh, when we witness to people that grew up in church, they'll say, well, I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. You know, they saw uh, fighting and division in the church, which Paul calls in Corinthians, by the way, carnality. Okay, if there's division in the church, that's fleshliness. Um, but, but people see that, and that detracts from the glory of God. So we glorify God when we live in unity with fellow Christians. Number nine, we glorify God when we live in purity. And back to Romans 6.19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we live in purity before God, instead of living in sin, we glorify God. Number 10, we, we glorify God and we live in integrity. First Peter 2, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, this reminds me of a statement of Jesus where he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We glorify God when we live in integrity. Number 11, we glorify God when we use our gifts and abilities in the church. First Peter 4, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister or serve, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says in these verses, if anybody's going to serve, let him do it as the ability which God's given him, that in all things God may be glorified. In other words, just with praise, half-hearted service to God does not glorify him. God is glorified when we use our gifts and abilities to serve him, and we do so with our ability, passionately serving God to the best of our ability. We glorify God when we use our gifts and abilities in the church. And then number 12, we glorify God when we give generously of our finances. Second so Corinthians 9, For the administration of this service not only supplieth the wants of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgiving unto God, whilst the experiments of this ministration 
They glorify God by your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. Now that's very confusing wording. Uh, but basically what's being said there is that Paul is commending this church for their gifts financially to other people and to their church uh, and saying that when people saw your giving and your liberal uh, distribution, as it says in 9.13, that's basically saying you gave generously uh, and that brought glory to God. Number 13, lastly, we glorify God when we give up everything to follow Jesus. John 29.19, Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to die by crucifixion, and we know in history that he does. But John twenty nine nineteen says, This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. This is a beautiful passage in the Bible where after telling Peter, you're going to die for preaching the gospel, Jesus then says, Now follow me. I mean, that's a powerful moment where Jesus is saying, you know, Peter, you've got to make a choice here. You know that if, if you follow me, this is the cost. Now is it worth it? And Peter said yes. And Peter followed him and he preached the gospel and he ends up uh, crucified for the cause of Christ. In fact, we know in history that Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. But when, when Peter did what Christ had called him to do, even though it meant he would die, that brought glory to God. I think of the martyrs that were burned at the stake under Bloody Mary. They would preach as they were being burned. And it, it, they kept doing it, and it frustrated the Catholic system so much that eventually they started strangling the martyrs as they were burning them, just to get them to shut up, because they were bringing so much, as they were preaching, that testimony of faithfulness to God, even while you're dying, it brought other people to salvation. People crowd, crowded around and watched and saw, you know, how can we deny that what they're telling us is true if they're willing to die while still proclaiming it? And so... This testimony of glorifying God while dying for him, when we give up everything to follow Jesus, we're willing to lay down our lives on the altar and say, I'm yours, that glorifies God. So we look at this account back in Luke 2 at the birth of our Savior. We consider the words of the angel that Jesus came to save us. Our response should be to this good news, to glorify God in our lives. We should praise him. We should lift him up. Because after all, as the angel said in verse 10, unto us is born this Savior. He's been born for us. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things pondered them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Praise God for sending our Savior. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.